0: It's a very great pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, my timing seems to be fortuitous. Uh, not only am I here for the fifth uh, year uh, anniversary of the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, but I get to kick off Homecoming weekend, and that's a first—a real milestone for me as well, first time I've ever done that. So I know some of you are uh, going to be eager to get started on uh, Homecoming, uh, so I'll get going. Um, Today, I plan to share uh, some of my perspectives on some of the economic challenges facing uh, our country today. And in doing so, I'll provide a little bit of background on the Federal Reserve's role on behalf of the nation's economy. Um, We, too, uh, at the Federal Reserve, will be observing an important milestone soon, and it's our centennial. Uh, We were uh, founded by the Federal Reserve Act, which was passed on December 23rd of 1913. And uh, our operations began on uh, November 1914, so our centennial's right around the corner. But first I should share the standard disclaimer that is uttered by virtually every uh, Federal Reserve uh, official uh, when they begin giving a speech, and that's that the views expressed in this talk are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System. So... To start with, let me say that I feel on a a sense of affinity for the Frank Batten School uh, here, um, even though this is the first time I've ever visited the school here. This is in part due to Jerry Warburg, who I understand is uh, under the weather and uh, for whom I have um, best wishes and and hopes for a speedy recovery. He spoke at a gathering at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond last fall And uh, then again to our our board of directors uh, last month. Um, So and and in fact I became ill before that meeting and didn't get to see his speech. So I I guess there's some sort of synchronicity going on here uh, that I don't quite understand. Now Jerry was quite enlightening uh, regarding the political landscape and in particular the political opportunities and pitfalls uh, that might await the Fed in the years immediately ahead. I was delighted to learn from Jerry that he is related to Paul Warburg, uh, the uh, famous financier who 100 years ago championed the creation of our nation's central bank. Um, he helped author the first draft of what became uh, the Federal Reserve Act, which I said was signed into law in December 1913. Not only did Paul Warburg campaign for a central bank, but he served on the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System in the Fed's early years, and he later wrote a detailed book explaining the operation of the Federal Reserve System uh, for the general public. And anyone who's taken a good hard look at the structure of the Federal Reserve these days can appreciate why someone would be motivated to write a book explaining uh, that structure to the general public. It's it's not um, it's not a simple topic. I'll say a little bit more about our complicated structure in a minute or two, and I explain it to you, try to give you a basic overview of it. So another link to the Batten School uh, for me is that I feel a bit of an indirect connection to Frank Batten Sr. himself. Uh, a man named Lemuel Lewis served as the chairman of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank Board of Directors a few years back, and he had worked. He worked for several years um, under underneath Frank Batten at Landmark Communications uh, down in the Hampton Roads area. Lem was quite generous with his praise uh, for Frank Batten. And in fact, he, he spoke often and quite warmly uh, about the tremendous difference uh, that Mr. Batten made in Lem's personal and professional life. So I feel as if I, I, I understand a bit um, the impact Frank Batten Sr. had on people. And I can well, as a result, I can well understand why your school's report uses the word revered uh, when referring to the school's namesake. Frank Batten's vision for this school was to bring together teaching and research on uh, the practice of leadership in the public policy realm. And as a Reserve Bank president, it's been my uh, unique privilege uh, to be able to participate in a very unique uh, American public policy institution I've had a ringside seat for uh, and at times I've participated in uh, some of the most significant economic policy cha- challenges uh, that our c- countries faced in, in recent years that includes participating in some Sunday night phone calls uh, to Uh, discuss uh, the disposition of troubled financial institutions. I've seen firsthand the enormous demand that are placed on the leaders of uh, such policy institutions. And as a result, I heartily endorse uh, the creation of an educational institution uh, that's founded on this compelling vision of leadership in the public policy realm. The notion that economic policy requires highly collaborative leadership skills I think is going to resonate with anyone as well that has had a good working knowledge of the Federal Reserve System. Our nation's monetary policy is entrusted to a relatively large deliberative body, the Federal Open Market Committee, Dean Harding referred to, FOMC is what we call it uh, for short. It consists of 12 voting members. I'm a voting member this year. Um, Seven of the voting members are the board of governors of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, in Washington. Five voting members, the other five voting members, are drawn from the ranks of the presidents of the reserve banks. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York always serves at, on the FOMC. The other four rotate. Uh, Chicago and Cleveland alternate every other year. For the other banks, we alternate two years off, th- one year on. And this is a year. Uh, that I'm on, I'll serve again in three years as a voting member. Now, all 19 of us, the 12 Reserve Bank presidents and the nine members of the Board of Governors, participate fully in the FOMC meetings. Um, and so there's a there's a, a terminology um, that's used here, members versus participants. If you read the minutes of the FOMC, which are released publicly three weeks after the, uh, the meeting, uh, I think last week, Uh, the latest batch of minutes was published. Uh, The minutes from the latest meeting were published. If you read those, for most of the minutes, they refer to participants. And when they say participants, it means all the presidents and the governors. Then at the end, when they're talking about the actual decision that's made, the actual monetary policy choice, there they switch and talk about members. Um, And uh, that refers to just the 12 voting members. So a few words about reserve banks. The Board of Governors is a federal agency, but the regional reserve banks are independently chartered banks. They're empowered under the Federal Reserve Act to provide clearing and settlement services for our nation's banking system and for the United States Treasury. In addition, reserve bank staff members supervise financial institutions on behalf of the Board of Governors, a sort of um, delegated authority from the Board of Governors, given powers the board's given, and in addition, reserve bank staff uh, conduct research, fundamental economic research. As the Board of Governors has a large economic staff of two, of course. Uh, economic research in support of the Fed's mission, both in monetary policy, payments uh, operations, payments policy, and uh, crucially, banking and financial uh, market supervision. All told, the expenses of the reserve banks come to um, over $3 billion dollars. Um, So as you can see, the leadership challenges uh, in the reserve bank world come in many different varieties. It's not just monetary policy uh, that challenges us in the leadership dimension. The design of this collaborative structure was very deliberate. Um, It reflected the vision of, among others, uh, Carter Glass of Lynchburg, Virginia, just down Route 29 from here. Like Frank Batten uh, Sr., Uh, Carter Glass was a a newspaper editor by trade. He also served in the U.S. House of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate. While he was in the House in 1913, um, he worked with uh, President Woodrow Wilson um, and he led the effort in the House uh, to pass the Federal Reserve Act. He was chairman of the House, it was called then the House uh, Committee on Banking and and Currency, now it's called the House Financial Services Committee. Then, when he was in the Senate in the the 1930s, he played a crucial role in the Depression-era legislation um, that had to do with banking, particularly the Banking Act of 1935, which among other things, established the Federal Open Market Committee. Just as an aside, before the FOMC was established, it was the presidents that decided on open market policy, um, and the governors had only a very limited role um, the, F, the establishment of the, FDO, the FOMC in the '30s was part of the general centralization of economic policy power in Washington uh, that went along with the FDR administration and the other New Deal legislation. And you can see this structure: uh, seven governors, five presidents, assures that presidential appointees can outvote the, the presidents uh, when that's, uh, if they if they so desire. Carter Glass insisted on this federated dis, uh, structure. Uh, he was adamant about it. It was a fundamental tenet of, um, it was a fundamental principle for him in, in designing the act. The, the idea was that geographically dispersed reserve banks would understand and remain connected to uh, their local economic regions. Uh, and, and that makes sense in a country as huge as, as, as ours, I think. He strongly opposed... Proposals by some, including uh, Paul Warburg, I might add, um, that would have concentrated the central bank's power in a single institution, a single uh, reserve bank or reserve association headquartered in Washington or New York. So, this federated structure ensures that a wide range of perspectives are brought to bear on policy questions. Moreover, the Fed's federated structure, the way I've laid it out to you, build, builds in a blend of public and private governance. Each Reserve Bank is overseen by its own Board of Directors and consisting of private citizens drawn from all walks of life in our district. Each Reserve Bank president is appointed by the Board of Directors of their Reserve Bank, subject to the approval of the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. This provides a measure of insulation for monetary policy decision-making from the short-run pressures associated with electoral politics, um, and thereby it encourages a, a longer-term focus. And that's, that's become, it's become clear that it's very essential for the conduct of monetary policy. Across, uh, across the industrialized world, in the process of fighting inflation and bringing it down in, in the 1980s and 1990s, many countries found uh, that it aided the effort uh, to take their, their central bank out from under the direct control of the Minister of Finance and giving them independent charters uh, with accountability to go along with that independence with a, a mandate and a requirement to report back to a legislative body on their performance, but a measure of insulation from uh, the swings in, in who holds uh, in the reins of, of the administration of the given, of the country. And that our structure paralleled that, but it was built in by design back in 1913. I think that much of what's distinctive about the Federal Reserve's leadership culture derives from our federated structure. It's often observed that the Federal Reserve is an exceptionally collegial um, institution, and that, that's been quite, I'd endorse that observation. It's been quite uh, consistent with my experience. And y- you can see this in the transcripts of the FOMC meetings. We, with a five-year lag, we release verbatim transcripts of the FOMC meetings. Um, and you, you can see it all, warts and all there. You can see exactly what we talked about. And you can go on, it's online and federalreserve.org, uh, you hunt down, you can find these transcripts. You'll notice that there's a, a certain genteel formality uh, about it, you might be, uh, you know, you, so you'll see participants referred to as President Plosser President Lacker, Governor Duke. And when we talk about Ben Bernanke, we say Mr. Chairman. Uh, and so there's certain, a certain little formality and dignity about it that I think tends to help keep the tempers down. Uh, uh, you'll see uh, a, uh, a conviviality there. You know, these, even though there's sharp intellectual disagreements at times among members of the committee, uh, you'll see that we, jokes arise, jests, Arise, and you'll see these denoted uh, with very dryly in the transcript with uh, a bracketed word laughter. You know, so the transcript will just say in brackets laughter, and uh, so you'll know that somebody cracked a joke, and uh, the the level of uh, chuckles rose to the level, you know, rose to over the threshold and got the word um, laughter in the transcript. So more substantively. If you read the transcripts you'll you'll see the length to which the committee goes to forge a workable consensus on a policy action. Policy alternatives are circulated a week in advance and participants that's done so and, and what what we do is ask the participants uh, whether those alternatives span the range of plausible alternatives. In other words, is there something can you support something in here? Is it You know, is what you want in here somewhere, um, you know, maybe not one of the three alternatives, but, you know, maybe a combination, mixing and matching a couple of pieces from the alternatives, could you support one of them? Or should we put something else on the table to reflect your views? At the meeting, after a a set of staff briefings on financial markets and the recent economic data and the economic outlook, um, each participant provides an extensive statement of their views about the economy. About ten to fifteen minutes each. Presidents usually include views on their economic uh, economic conditions in their district as part of this because, while there's a lot of economic data at a fairly local level, states and the like. Um, presidents spend a lot of time, and we spend a, and reserve Bank staff in general have a, spend a lot of time uh, interacting with members of the public. We have boards of directors, we have advisory, councils. Um, we get out and give speeches. We talk to bu- people in business, consumers, and through that ga- gather anecdotal evidence about what's going on economically, and that's very valuable because it's, it's more timely than the economic data, which is often sort of unreliable and, until three or four months have passed, and it's more forward-looking, and it gives you a sense of reasoning why businesses are on the sideline now, for example, um, and it's just exceptionally valuable. So we hear from the presidents, Presidents hear from everyone around the, around the table, around the country, you hear anecdotally what the feel of what people are telling them in their district, and that's usually important. Another go-round follows all, all that go-round in which participants express their views on the policy alternatives that, are on, that were distributed and that are on the table. By the time that go-round gets done, is completed, at, at, the, at the end of that, the chairman puts his proposal on the table. And by that time, a workable consensus is usually pretty clear. There's a good sense of where the, the center of gravity is. The chairman picks his point um, on, in, that, in that consensus and, and frames the decision going forward. Now, at times, there's a, um, and this is this will be fun to read in the uh, minutes, in the transcripts, rather. At, at times, this policy part is followed by some I'll call them surprisingly efficient, collective wordsmithing. Uh, so people during the policy go around and will say, well, I like this alternative, but I think we should change, I think we need the word somewhat before, you know, moderate. And so we'll, the, the chairman will collect all these proposals um, and um, we'll debate them one by one afterwards and dispose of them pretty rapidly. The chairman and the committee have gotten really good at this. Um, and this, this is what assures the, the, the statement has that fine patina of central bank uh, prose uh, that you've come to, that uh, Fed watchers have come to know and love, a very distinctive uh, language. So then there's a final roll call at the end. And, it, what, and not until the final roll call would an observer in that room know who's a voting member or not. You wouldn't be able to tell until the final roll call. All of us have an equal say in the deliberative process, if not the final vote. So this is laborious um, and time-consuming um, as a deliberative process. Thankfully, we receive tremendous support uh, from a large staffs that are dedicated to research and analysis, uh, both at the Board of Governors, they have the largest staff, a couple of hundred economists, um, but also the reserve banks um, that have a couple of dozen economists uh, at each of the reserve banks. I think this makes sense uh, to, to have a, a, a very serious laborious process and serious staff support because of the serious potential impact our decisions have on, on American consumers. Um, I, think, I think also that our federated structure uh, contributes to the strong sense of collegiality in the Federal Reserve System. Uh, the fact that reserve bank presidents derive their authority from a distinct independent governance bodies um, i think it has a leveling effect on on the deliberations and i think that's good fomc participants come to the meeting expecting their colleagues to bring their best independent judgments to bear on the issues of the day but they also expect everyone to listen to everyone else and that's been my experience at the committee meetings as well and I think it results in a very high-quality deliberative process. As a voting member of the f this year, I've, I have found myself at times within the workable consensus. I've found myself at times outside of the workable consensus, sometimes both at the same meeting. For example, um, I've agreed with uh, the uh, Committee's decisions this year to keep interest rates near zero. Because our economy is growing at a, only a relatively modest pace. And in, in that kind of environment, low interest rates and the corresponding monetary stimulus are needed to keep inflation from falling below the committee's 2% objective. On certain key points, however, I've disagreed with the committee's other voting members. And the result, as a result, I've dissented at six meetings uh, this year, all six of the ones that have occurred so far. So let me explain. At each meeting this year, the committee has used as issued uh, forward guidance, it's called. Um, that is, it's, it's language that states that economic conditions are likely to warrant um, a federal funds rate near zero. So the, the current version says near zero until mid 2015. I've objected to that type of language because I think it's a highly imperfect way uh, to communicate about future policy. Um, such language could easily be misinterpreted as mere pessimism about the outlook, and that could make market participants more pessimistic than they otherwise would have been, and that can actually have a dampening effect on growth now. In addition, such language could be misinterpreted as suggesting diminished commitment to keeping inflation at 2%, and I, I would oppose adopting such a stance, and I, I don't believe that my colleagues on the FOMC intend that interpret either of these interpretations of that forward guidance language. In addition, at the September meeting, the FOMC decided to begin increasing the size of its balance sheet by purchasing uh, agency-backed mortgage-backed secu- agency mortgage-backed securities. I believe that the benefits of that action are likely to be small uh, because I think it's unlikely to improve growth. Um, And if it does improve growth, it's likely to do so, along with causing an unwelcome increase in inflation. At the same time, adding to our balance sheet just increases the risk that we're going to have to move more quickly than otherwise when the time comes to normalize monetary policy and begin raising interest rates. Finally, if we're going to purchase more assets... I would prefer to purchase only Treasury securities rather than to purchase agency mortgage-backed securities. By buying mortgage-backed securities rather than instead just buying Treasuries, it'll reduce interest rates for conforming home mortgages. It'll have a greater impact on conforming home mortgages. But compared to buying Treasury securities, um, it raises interest rates for other borrowers. Um, And thus, it's going to distort credit flows. It's going to tilt the playing field uh, towards some sectors and away from others. This constitutes credit allocation. It constitutes an action to shift credit supply away from some sectors towards other sectors. This is, first of all, uh, something that it's hard to judge whether it's good for the overall economy or not. But moreover, it, it's in the nature of picking winners and losers, and I believe that's an inappropriate role for the Federal Reserve. This principle, that credit allocation is inappropriate for the Fed, was recognized in a joint statement of the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve on March 23, 2009, after the crisis uh, was, was dissipating and that we were reaching the bottom of the recession. Uh, that statement said, government decisions to influence the allocation of credit are the province of the fiscal authorities, that is to say Congress and the administration. And the reason, the reason it's inappropriate for a central bank goes back to the, the, that insulation, that independence that I talked about before. We have a tremendous privilege uh, given to us by that independence. It's given to us for the purpose of monetary stability, uh, and focusing on the long run of monetary policy. And we should not abuse that independence by straying into fiscal policy and directing credit from one sector to another. As I said earlier, our economy is on a relatively sluggish growth path, um, recovering from the sharp contraction in economic activity that occurred in the Great Recession, 2008, 2009. We lost over eight million jobs in that recession in the immediate aftermath. Um, since then, we've added about four and a quarter million net new jobs, and that leaves us far away from, from a full recovery. Similarly, you can see this in the unemployment data. Um, unemployment rose from five percent at the end of '07 to over ten percent at the end of 2009. So, while the unemployment rate has fallen since that peak, it's seven point eight percent, the latest reading for September. It, the decline has generally been viewed as disappointingly slow. There are several factors that appear to be impeding the pace of recovery right now. First, the housing market is still coping with a large inventory overhang that remains after the pre-recession boom in housing construction that, with hindsight, clearly went too far. The housing sector has shown some uh, signs of of, uh, improvement. Home prices and construction have improved this year, for example, but housing investment is still quite low relative to historical norms. And it's going to continue to underperform, gradually improve, but underperform until the demand for housing uh, makes more progress catching up to uh, the existing housing stock that we already have. The second and related impediment to growth has been the significant shift in economic ac- activity, in the composition of economic activity, away from residential construction and related supply and support industries. The rapid loss of jobs in these industries layered on top of ongoing longer run sectoral shifts has resulted in large inflows into the ranks of unemployed and it has resulted in a shift in the skill profile of the typically unemployed worker. Um, that shift in the skill profile of available workers has meant that the, the frictions that are always present in the labor market having to do with reallocation and matching the the right skills with the right kind of vacancy, the right opening, those reallocation and skill mismatch frictions are particularly high right now, particularly onerous right now uh, in labor markets. And that's slowing down the absorption of these laid-off workers into new productive activities in some other sector. Third uh, factor impeding growth, the Great Recession appears to have made many consumers more cautious and less willing to spend relative to their income and wealth. The declines in income and wealth that we experienced during the recent recession were far greater than in other recent recessions since the early 80s. As a result consumers seem to have become more apprehensive about their future income prospects and that's tempered uh, consumer spending. Uh, they're, they're more interested in paying down debt than they would, they would have been. Uh, they're more interested in building up savings than they would have been. Finally, the political gridlock that has delayed remedies to our unsustainable federal fiscal path has meant paralyzing uncertainty across the vast range of fiscal policy touch points in our economy. This appears to have seriously dampened investments and in hiring for new business ventures and that would typically take up the this economic slack caused by some other sectors' rapid decline. Should they all take effect, the spending cuts and tax increases that are going to automatically occur next year if Congress fails to act, the so-called fiscal cliff, we were talking about this earlier, will likely cause the economy to contract and push us back into a recession. On the other hand, even apart from the fiscal cliff, the longer-run federal fiscal outlook is for a significant imbalance between taxes and spending. I'm sure you're familiar here with the projections of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office that show that the outstanding stock of federal debt is likely to increase without bound as a ratio to gross domestic product. That is simply not feasible. It will not happen. We don't know how it won't happen, but it will not happen. Um, At some point, Congress and the administration are gonna have to get their act together and align taxes and spending the set of policy changes that could conceivably be adopted to remedy that situation or to fix the fiscal cliff affect almost every American consumer in business in a meaningful way. And as a result, a wide range of people have ample reason to sit on the sidelines and just put plans on hold at this point. And I think that's having a significant dampening effect on growth. So where does the economy go from here? My, guess, my best guess is that we'll, we'll muddle through for a while. There'll be a, a couple of can kicks uh, in the near term um, before we, we, we get to some solution on these fiscal issues. Uh, but I'm hoping that towards the end of next year some clarity emerges um, and uh, that the, as a result uh, the uncertainty dissipates, growth uh, begins to firm and co- would continue to improve after that. The recession in Europe, I haven't talked about Europe at all, uh, poses some risks for this outlook, but I think those risks are likely to dissipate next year. I think the leaders over there have a clear view of where they need to get to, even if the adjustments they're working through um, to create a new fiscal regime are are proving time-consuming and arduous to create. As labor markets continue to heal, as the unemployment rate gradually comes down and memories of the recession recede a bit, I expect household confidence to slowly firm and bolster uh, consumer spending. Longer term, I think the fundamental prospects for U.S. growth remain quite, quite promising. I think they're likely to reassert themselves in the years ahead if we can successfully put these short-run policy challenges behind us. We have a, a proven ability to generate advances in scientific knowledge and in commercially applicable innovation. The flexibility and resilience of our markets, along with a relatively well-educated populace, makes this an excellent market in which to implement innovations. Our major challenge over the long haul, as I see it, is to continue to deepen the knowledge and the skills of our people, because growing human capital is fundamental to improving our standards of living over the long haul. Thank you very much for your attention. It's been great to speak with you. I want to thank Jeff Lacker for a very, very comprehensive and interesting speech. Uh-huh. I know I learned a lot about uh, the structure and the history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, We just had a a speech here in this room uh, in questions and answers on the concept of collaborative leadership, and uh, this fits very well uh, with that, and then followed by a a very uh, interesting and happily uh, relatively optimistic long-term view of the prospects for growth in the American economy. We do have some time for questions, and uh, Mr. Lacker has agreed to take them himself, and I'll simply watch the time and uh, call things to uh, a close when we need to. Great. Thanks. Yes? And, uh on the first year postgrading uh you mentioned the overhang of household debt to be economically growth. I wondered specifically uh what do you think can be done uh within perhaps the next Congress or the next four years at the state or federal level to get rid of that sub personal consumption goes back up in the economy control. Um so the question is about the overhang of consumer debt. Um households household debt, right? So households are, are, are trying to bring their financial balance sheets back into align with what they'd like them to be. That requires time, savings, if, if, if nothing else happens, um, salting away enough so you have a, a liquid buffer, um, working through the overhang of uh, underwater uh, homes that are, people are underwater on and the like. Um, so at a policy level, there's been a lot of discussion about home mortgages and underwater home mortgages. The system we have was built, first of all, for far fewer um, mortgage defaults um, as a, a fraction of outstanding mortgages. So the, the, you know, the, the system, the financial system, has struggled. Usually mortgage services have struggled um, in the early years of the crisis to, to ramp up just the, the sheer production capacity of processing um, defaulted borrowers. Um, And there have been a lot of missteps along the way, Um, uh, shortcuts that were taken and were perhaps tolerable in in other times where uh, concerns about uh, procedural fairness were maybe less acute. Um, So beyond uh, beyond that, those investments and the regulatory oversight to make sure that these are being done fairly and with integrity, um, some have proposed... um, uh, Measures aimed at debt forgiveness or more or relief, and there there's a fundamental tension uh, that we, we need to f- need to be cognizant of. So the the um, so any de- any debt is um, a complex array of property rights um, and uh, assigns those rights in a certain way. Um, so by that I mean, for example, um, nobody can do anything to you if you pay, but if you don't pay, then some property rights emerge. So you, you, the lender has the right to go seek remedy for your non-payment. Um, this is speaking at a very abstract level. Um, so the, the the actions that occur in that in that event. Um, are, are foreseen, either implicitly or explicitly, by financial market participants, and have an effect on the terms of the contract ex ante, right? Um, so, uh, a uh, you know, a, uh, it'll it'll have an effect on what investors are willing to charge for a loan because it has an effect on how much they'll recover in the event of default. And uh, it has an effect on borrowers' willingness to enter into a a borrowing arrangement because it affects their sense of what could happen to them, how safe is this loan or not. So right now, broadly speaking, we're mostly going down the path of resolving home mortgage problems in accordance with contractual terms. Um, And... uh, you know, a natural proposal some have made is to you know, alter those terms ex post. Well, you, you set a precedent when you do that on a massive scale because you, you tell people that this political system is willing to intervene in private contracts and alter their payoffs um, you know, if certain things happen. And you want to be really careful about that because the, the potential effect is on the supply of credit you could end up hurting people in the future that are very analogous to the people you're trying to help today. Uh, because if, 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 if the lending community, if, if the investor community, came to believe that intervention uh, that um, sort of essentially expropriates lenders and shifts wealth to borrowers were more likely, they would charge more and fewer people would have access to credit. So you, you ought to be really careful about that. The programs that have been designed so far have been designed to sort of thread the needle of not, you know, not significantly, essentially expropriating um, investor wealth, um, you know, as as much as you know that might be desirable from from some points of view. Um, so I think I think we're I think we're charting a pretty moderate course. The other suggestion, which I think is. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it is, would be extremely dangerous is to undertake that transfer of wealth by uh, through inflation, uh, by running up the price level um, so as to depreciate the real value of the obligation so that, you know, the dollars you have to pay back are worth less, your wages are higher. We do not want to go down that path. Nice to meet you, please. Nice to meet you, please. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process you and other voting members go through when you're deciding whether to sign on to a consensus statement you don't entirely agree with versus the same That's a really good question. The question was, how do you decide whether to sign on to something you're a little uncomfortable with? So it's this is a subtle thing, and different people, I'll repeat my disclaimer here, that different members of the committee might have different views on this. My own view is that, um, uh, you know, if if I disagree with a word or two, you know, if it's a matter of somewhat uh, uh, versus uh, moderate, you know, I'm I'm not going to dissent on that. Um, And I I think that carries over more broadly. I I think the level of discomfort has to, has to be above a certain threshold. It, it, it for me, it's not just that. Well, if I were choosing, I would choose A over B. Because um, if A and B are really neck and neck, I'm not sure I would dissent over you know A rather than B. Um, you know, it's it's where the you know my my belief about the relative desirability of the courses of action exceeds some material threshold uh, that 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 I feel. Um, You know, a dissent is warranted. Uh, Uh, David Brown, uh, Senior Associate Dean here for Academic Affairs. Economist uh, Robert Gordon has given new life to the recipe of the description of economics as a dismal science. (laughs) But a recent in the article, I've only read the description of it. I'm sure you're familiar with it. People are talking about it, yeah, absolutely. So he's referring to a paper by uh, Professor Robert Gordon, um, who um, has an outstanding research career of, of, um, you know, the hallmark of which is extremely careful measurement of macroeconomic um, trends. So he goes over the productivity data, and productivity, you know, output per worker, is ultimately standard of living. It's ultimately your, you know, household well-being. And uh, he, he are, he sort of traces um, fluctuations in that growth rate. So as, as a first approximation, economists are, are fond of looking back 150 years, doing a, regre- a trend regression and saying, oh, it's been a percent and three quarters for 150 years. And he says, well, you know, it's a little more subtle than that. There have been swings of a decade or two long, you know, sort of up and down in that growth rate. And he identifies, um, he identifies surges in productivity growth with... Um, three ma- implementation of three major uh, sort of general purpose technologies, um, and uh, the, so for example, the um, the last one of which was computing computers. Um, about a hundred years ago, electricity uh, kind of transformed things, and the classic story is you know we had electricity at the turn of the century, but it took three, two or three decades to do things like rebuild factories. Factories used to be tall. Uh, so like in an old city, you know, like Danville say, they were tall because you needed – you had a steam engine and you wanted to run pulleys. But with electric motors, you can spread out the factory so you don't need elevators to bring stuff up and down. So now factories are flat. And it took till the 30s or 40s to kind of organize things that way. Um, so that's kind of an example of sort of slowly a general purpose thing that just sort of reorders everything. And it takes a couple of decades for us to really extract all the value out of that. Um, so he, he says, oh, we're done. He sort of doesn't see anything coming forward that's that, that cool. I disagree. I, I think prospects are bright. I think that, I think that the ubiquity of um, communications technology is profound. And the ubiquity of data and the, 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 the cheapness of gathering data on something and the cheapness of storing it and manipulating it is... I think it's profound. I think it's, I think for decades to come, we have lots of value to extract from that. So, uh, there's a great there's a blogosphere dialogue on this. Uh, John Cochran's uh, website's in the back. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I have two quick questions. The first question is, since you were receiving some of these uh, scary phone calls in the middle of the night back in the... Uh, might recommend that best that explains the financial crisis? And my second question is, in your opinion, does uh, Dodd-Frank or will Dodd-Frank do enough to prevent a reoccurrence or is more action needed? Good question. So I get asked uh the book question, you know, what's the best book about the crisis? So I got in, you know, all these books started coming out in 2009 and so I'd go into bookstores and I'd, I'd thumb to the index and see if my name was in it. <laughs> now, I didn't, I didn't do that, you know, because I wanted to be famous or anything. The reason is I just went to that part of the book, and if the part that my name was in was accurate, I, I would know, you know, because, you know, it's about me or something I participated in. I had a ready check. I was like the place to go to see whether it was a pretty accurate book or not. Um, a surprising number of books didn't pass that test. <laughs> so, as a result, I, you know, consistent with our nonpartisan stance on things, I'm also, I also take a non commercial stance, and, and uh, I, I don't want to direct the demand for readers to one sector or another. Um, about Dodd Frank, um, I do not think that Dodd Frank has provided us with uh, a stable and sustainable framework for regulating. Financial sector, or more broadly, I don't think we have. I don't think the relationship between the financial sector and government uh, is uh, healthy uh, yet. Dodd Frank involves. Dodd Frank reflects conflicting visions. Uh, One, you know, is that um, markets inherently screw up, and um, so and 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 financial firms, you know, and that it's it's good that financial firms get, get bailouts. It's sort of a necessary evil that financial firms get bailouts from time to time. And so we need to constrain risk taking. Um, and then on the other hand, there's many provisions that reflect an alternative vision, which is that we need to do more to make um, the creditors, the private sector creditors of financial institutions, particularly large financial institutions, feel as if their money is at risk and feel as if they're not going to be rescued in a crisis so that they have the the incentive to constrain risk-taking by the institutions they're lending to. Um, and so the institution and the investors have an incentive to avoid fragile uh, financial structures uh, like borrowing sh- very short-term liquid markets and and um, you know, in overnight markets and, and, and holding illiquid liquid assets back in, um, with, with those funds. Um, I, so I, I don't think we're go- we've gotten there. We even have a lot of work just to, to implement Dodd-Frank going forward, but um, I, I don't think we've resolved some fundamental questions, and I expect both more legislation, I'd hope for more legislation going forward, and I'd um, expect um, if we don't do something... Um, further episodes of instability in years ahead. This is uh, My name is uh, Can you go back to inflation? Uh, sure. It seems to me a lot of CEO friends think that politicians are going to try to take the easy way out and gin up inflation so that they can cheat the value of the overhead. You on the other hand have a policy of holding down inflation. How are you going to reconcile that conflict? That all assumes that they're not going to do a sense of or something gold. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, and it's a, it's, that's a difficult challenge. Um, so let me say a word first about the relationship between fiscal policy and, and monetary policy. So, the, so we have a balance sheet. Our liabilities are money, and as assets we hold Treasury securities. And we can obviously cause more inflation by buying more Treasury securities. So as long as we're in control, of, you might think that as long as we're in control of that, fine. Now the the problem with that is that, um, so that forces forces a a constraint on fiscal authorities. That forces them to, over the long run, essentially balance the budget. Uh, At least more generally, I guess more precisely, it it forces them to not adopt unsustainable uh, plans. Plans that cannot be sustained without inflation. But it doesn't make them adopt those plans. It, it just makes those plans infeasible. If they wait long enough and things unwind, things could happen, right? So it, it's like a game of chicken, right? We're saying, no, we're not inflating. And they're saying, well, no, we're not balancing the budget. The, the scary scenario I fear is that financial markets come to believe that there's enough Pressure brought to bear on the Federal Reserve to accommodate unsustainable fiscal plans, and if that happened, that, that that could happen whether we would or wouldn't. You know, even if we're totally forthright, even if we're totally committed, market, if markets believe we're not, um, then inflation expectations rise and things unravel, and uh, we're we're in um, we're in hot water. So there's that there's there's that key thing there that we can't really force each other it's a, it's kind of a game of chicken okay. tricky. maybe one more That's a good question. I, you know, I'm I, I'm reluctant to, to go on the record here because uh, someone there's someone sitting at the head table here knows far more about the details of this than I do, uh, Professor Shobe, a friend of mine um, uh, from Richmond. Uh, so my my broad sense though is that um, you know the clean air in, the clean energy industry has succeeded more in raising aspirations that it has in delivering sort of cost cost uh, effective things that meet market tests. You know, I'm on, I'm on shaky ground here to the extent to which some um, you know energy sources involve some externalities, and we don't really know. You know, we haven't really priced those in. We haven't really forced people to bear those costs, and so we don't really know what the right market test is there. So. Um, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm with a lot of other economists to say that, um, you know, a, a healthier way forward would be to do our best to, to take our best estimate of those externalities, if they're serious, slap on the right Paguvian taxes, and let the market sort out, you know, how much cl- of a clean energy industry we need. Good question. Thank you all very much. Good luck. <laughs>